Daniel 2 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, but it might just be Satan's most hated. Well, obviously Satan hates all of the Bible, but he hates three books most of all. Of course, he hates Genesis and Revelation. Genesis introduces us to Creator, Almighty God, and Revelation tells his doom. Have you ever considered that Satan isn't in the first two chapters of the Bible and he's not in the last two? I believe it's God's way of saying, it all started with God and Satan's not gonna be around for the finish. But the third book he hates, maybe above all the rest, is the book of Daniel. Through the centuries, he's pulled out all the stops to discredit that book, even today. Most liberal seminaries teach their future false prophets that Daniel is not an authentic book. You heard that right. Christian seminaries, oftentimes liberal ones, teach their students that Daniel is not a real Bible book. They think it was a forgery written about 165 BC. Now, if Daniel is placed where it claims to be, it's not at 165 BC, it's in the sixth century BC, about 500 years before that. Well, if Daniel was written in the sixth century BC, why do the critics say it was written about 165 BC? After all, there's no evidence that any Daniel wrote about that time. But I'll show you why in just a minute. You see, those who deny God's word need Daniel to be written in that late date. Satan needs it to be a forgery. For sure, they have to paddle upstream because there's a ton of evidence that Daniel was written exactly when the Bible says it was written in the sixth century BC. Let me go through some of those right now. For one thing, Daniel is mentioned by a contemporary prophet, Ezekiel, two times. Look at one of those mentions now. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14, he said, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, their righteousness would save no one but themselves, says the sovereign Lord. Well. Historians are agreed Ezekiel wrote somewhere between 600 B.C. and 570 B.C. How could he write about a man who didn't live until 165 B.C.? There's another proof, and I don't have time to elaborate on this, but the Jewish canon was completed long before 165 B.C., and you should understand that although those who put the canon together seriously questioned some of the books and got answers for those questions, no one ever questioned the veracity of the book of Daniel. There's a big one as well, and that's that Jesus mentions Daniel. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel. If Daniel was a forgery in 165 BC, if it was a fraudulent book, why would Jesus call Daniel the prophet Daniel? Well, there are so many more proofs like that, but archeology, span has really done damage to the critics. Now, I'm gonna ask you to work with me because this one is, it's gonna be a little challenging, but it's gonna be worth it when we get through. For many years, the critics, those who hate the Bible, even though they proclaim to be Christian, the critics thought they had the coup de grace, the death blow to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter five, Daniel mentions a Babylonian king named Belshazzar. In fact, Daniel chapter 5 is the story of the drunken party that ended the Babylonian Empire. Because at the end of that party, the Persians took over the city, according to the Bible, and they killed Belshazzar. Well, the critics had a field day with that one. They laughed because they looked at the story of Belshazzar and said, this is fiction. History doesn't record a Babylonian king named Belshazzar. 
Historians at that point universally agreed that the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus, and he wasn't killed. He was captured, but he was pensioned by the Persian government. When the ancient historian Herodotus, who Cicero called the father of history, when Herodotus visited Babylon in the 5th century BC, he makes no mention of a Belshazzar. He lists the Babylonian kings, but like, well, the critics said back in the day, he said Nabonidus was the last king. All history of Babylon after the 5th century does not mention Belshazzar. But all this time, the critics didn't realize they were painting themselves into a disastrous corner. In the 20th century, archaeologists began to discover ancient cuneiform tablets from the Babylonian Empire, and they were surprised to discover the name Belshazzar cropping up. And then they found a cuneiform tablet with the name Belshazzar and Nabonidus together. See, in those days in Babylon, when people swore or they created an official document, they would do so in the name of the king. But they began to discover, the archaeologists that is, that there were mentions of Belshazzar and Nabonidus together. As they continued to discover, they found more cuneiform tablets and the whole story came out. It seems that Nabonidus didn't like being king very much. And so he left his son, Belshazzar, in his place and Nabonidus went off to Saudi Arabia to study history and to study ancient civilizations. Belshazzar was left in his place to rule Babylon and then as the archaeologists began to uncover all kinds of evidence, Belshazzar's name was everywhere. He bought his sister's houses. He executed all kinds of contracts. Long story short, they found Belshazzar's name everywhere. But those of you who are really insightful, you realize what I'm talking about. Here's the question. Since none of the historians knew about Belshazzar after the 5th century BC, how would a fake Daniel have known about him 400 years later? There's only one way that Daniel could have known, and that is he had to be a contemporary. He had to be there. And there's one more thing. In Daniel chapter 5, which records Belshazzar's feast when the handwriting was on the wall, Belshazzar offered Daniel this deal. He said, if you can tell me what the writing means, I will make you the third highest ruler in the land. Why third? Well, the answer to that is he couldn't offer the second place because Belshazzar himself occupied that. He couldn't offer the first place because his dad, Nabonidus, was in that slot. Consequently, the best he could offer Daniel was the third highest ruler in the land. But even though all of these proofs and many, many more tell us that Daniel was written when the Bible says it was, the attack on that book has gone on through the years and ridiculously, it continues until this day. You would not believe the silly intellectual gymnastics the critics go through to attack the book of Daniel. So why? Why is Daniel, and especially this chapter, chapter 2, hated so much? Well, the answer is very simple. Daniel, in chapter 2, is going to prophesy the future very specifically. Now stay with me. Daniel is going to first speak about what is going to happen in the next 600 years after he wrote. That span of time is now history for us. So we are able to evaluate Daniel's prophecies through the lens of history. See, the problem for the critics who deny the power of God is Daniel's prophecies are just too perfect. The first part of his prophecy in this chapter is going to be about four succeeding world empires, 
And as we'll see in just a moment, Daniel was situationed during the first one, which was Babylon. After Babylon, Daniel would tell us about the coming of Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. So the critics say that's too perfect. It has to be, since they don't believe in the supernatural really, it has to be in their minds that Daniel was writing history pretending it was prophecy. One more time, the problem they have with Daniel is his prophecies are just too perfect. Well, that raises the question, why do they have to place him at 165 BC, especially since there's no evidence of Daniel living then? Well, the answer is simple. By then, he could have possibly seen that fourth empire on the way to becoming the dominant world power, Rome. And so that's why they have to have him at 165 BC. In their minds, he has to see that fourth empire. But we still haven't gotten to why this is hated so much. Here it is. After Daniel speaks of these four coming empires, he's going to talk about one more last day's empire that will rule the world through a fake messiah. Spoiler alert, we're talking about the Antichrist here and the last days. Now this last empire, according to Daniel, will be destroyed by Jesus Christ, who will then rule and reign forever, and this drives Satan absolutely nuts. Well, that's introduction. Let's open up the future, Daniel chapter 2. It's early in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon's first king, and Daniel is still a young man. I don't even think he's 20 years old here. Well, something goes down in the palace. The king has a dream, and he doesn't know what the dream is about. So he does the natural thing. He calls in his brain trust, the intelligentsia, and he demands in verse 2 of chapter 2 that he tell them what he had dreamed. He said, I've had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. I think Nebuchadnezzar had an inkling that this dream was about the future. And so he said to his intelligentsia, his brain trust, tell me the dream and tell me what it means. And they said to the king, you tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. The king said, you guys are just stalling for time. You're supposed to have supernatural powers. If you can't tell me what the dream is, then I don't trust you to tell me what the dream means. And he was so upset and enraged that he decided to kill all of his intelligentsia. When Daniel will eventually speak to the king, he will say this about what Nebuchadnezzar is asking. He says, there's not a man on the earth who can meet the king's demand. Now file that away for just a moment. Well, the reason why Daniel's now part of the story was when the king decided to have all his intelligentsia killed, that now includes Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who have been carried away into captivity, placed in the king's brain trust. So Daniel asks for time, and then he does what Daniel is going to do time and time again. He calls a prayer meeting. He gets his three friends together and prays for the dream and the interpretation, and God answers. Now Daniel appears before Nebuchadnezzar, and look at this. Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. I love how that verse is juxtaposed against the one we read a minute ago. Daniel said, there's not a man on the earth, but he said, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And look at this, he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. What a statement. Now, in verses 31 through 45, Daniel is going to spell out the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. 
he will say to him, King, in your dream, you saw the huge image of a man. Although it was a single image, different parts of this image were made out of different materials. Now what God is going to show Daniel is that these different metals that made up this image represented four succeeding world empires. File this away. There had really not been a world empire, a global empire, until these four powers. Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the image you saw was made out of gold. Its chest and arms were made out of silver. Its middle, its torso and thighs were made out of bronze and the legs were made out of iron. And oh yeah, there's one more part of this statue, the toes, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar as he unpacked this vision that God had given Nebuchadnezzar, he said to him, sir, you, Babylon, are the head of gold. Well, who were the next empires? Well, immediately after Babylon, there was the empire of Medo-Persia. And notice that the chest and arms represented Medo-Persia, made of silver. Well, there were two arms because there were the Medes and the Persians. The bronze, well, that was the empire that immediately followed the Persians. That was Alexander the Great and Greece. You know, I'll go off on a tangent here for a second, but I promise I'll come right back. There's the story of Alexander when he was taking over the world. He attacked Syria and he demanded that Jerusalem provision his army. And Jerusalem at that time was still loyal to the Persians and they refused to provision his army. Alexander the Great was so angry that he determined that on his way back from conquering Syria, he was going to destroy Jerusalem and he fully intended to. But Josephus tells us the story how that the high priest had a dream from God about how he could stop Alexander from destroying the city of Jerusalem. When Alexander and his troops were marching into Jerusalem, the story is that the high priest had the people of Israel to go out to meet him, all dressed in white, with the high priest dressed in his high priestly garments, and they went out singing praises to God. And when Alexander approached, according to Josephus, the high priest took the writing of the book of Daniel and showed Alexander where he was in the book of Daniel. And instead of coming in and destroying the city of Jerusalem, according to the historian, Alexander the Great came into Jerusalem and worshiped Jehovah God in the temple. Really interesting side story. Now let's get back to the image. There was the head of gold, Babylon. There were the chest and arms made out of silver, Medo-Persia. There was the torso made out of bronze, that's Alexander the Great. And then the legs of iron. Now I could spend hours talking about why this is so clear and so specific, but that's all history now. Let's go to that last kingdom. There are 10 toes, partly iron and partly clay. I always struggle to know exactly what that looked like because iron and clay are such different substances. It's also important to realize now we're into prophecy. We're not into history anymore. We're talking about the last day's empire. That raises a couple of questions. Why iron and clay and why 10 toes? We'll talk about this a lot more in the future, but the iron identifies the location of this upcoming kingdom. We know the legs of iron represented Rome, so consequently, we have to be talking about Europe here. The clay, that tells me that this is kind of mushy. It's a different kind of empire than perhaps we've ever seen before. Why 10 toes? Well, toes are individual, but they're joined. It's like they're separate, but at the same time, they're part of the same organ, the foot. I think God is trying to tell us what this last day's empire is going to be like. 
We'll talk about this a whole lot more in an upcoming message as Daniel talks to us about the Antichrist. Now, don't let me lose you here. But later in the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, God is going to give Daniel a second look at this pattern again. Now, the first time, this message is for Daniel to give to Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 7, God is going to give him a second look, this time for Daniel and for God followers. Now, the four kingdoms are identified again, but not as parts of a statue. This time, God uses four different animals to describe these kingdoms. Now, in this vision, God shows us that the Antichrist will come out of this 10-nation confederation. Now, the fourth animal here has 10 horns. So instead of toes this time, it's 10 horns. Now, notice what God says to Daniel, this time God speaking to his people about this last empire. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. So, what's different about chapter 7 from chapter 4 is in chapter 7, God introduces the Antichrist and shows us that the Antichrist will come out of this 10-nation confederacy. Now, if I were sitting where you're sitting, I'd have two questions. The first question I would want answered is, how do we know that this prophecy happens in the last days and not already? If most of Daniel's image has already happened in its history, how do we know that the toes, the ten kingdoms, are not history? Well, Daniel answers that for us within the context. In Daniel 2, verse 43, he tells about these ten nations. He said, they will not hold together just as iron and clay don't mix. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That, I know, hasn't happened yet. That's when Jesus comes and he rules forever. If you look at that verse, it says, during the reign of those 10 kings, that is when the Messiah, Jesus, will appear. So I know that last day's empire, and for many other reasons, I know that last empire hasn't happened yet. There's a second question, if I were sitting where you're sitting, I'd like to know the answer to. And that is, if most of this prophecy is history, and it was finished when the Roman Empire was finished, and then there's a future empire that's even yet future to us to this point, why all this big gap? Why is this gap of time between the end of Daniel's first part of the vision and the coming empire? Well, there's a beautiful answer to that. It's us. It's what we know of as the church age. What Daniel could not have seen was that God had a vision. He had a plan in mind for the time in between the fourth empire and the fifth empire, and that was to raise up his church. Now suppose that you wanted to give this entire time frame a title. By that I mean, what if you wanted to give a title to all of the time from, let's say, Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar to when Jesus comes back? Suppose you wanted to give the entire spectrum a title. Well, you don't need to worry about it because Jesus has already named it. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is talking about the end times and he talks about Israel. He said, they will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. 
We call that the diaspora. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until, look at this phrase, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, that's what we're talking about here. These kingdoms are the times of the Gentiles. We know that ultimately God is going to put his son Jesus on the throne of his father David, and Jesus will rule from Jerusalem the entire world. What we're talking about is the times of the Gentiles. Well, for over 2,000 years, Jerusalem has been owned by one of these powers or succeeding powers until 1967. And just this last year, the United States Embassy opened in Jerusalem. That tells me we're in the zone. We're in the zone of what Daniel talks about in this last day's empire. Now, do we see that fifth empire taking shape? That one's pretty easy. We see a coalition of nations in Europe. In 1957, a treaty was signed in Rome of all places that began what was called the European Economic Commission. Later, it was renamed as the EU. I don't know for sure exactly what the Bible is talking about. I'm not saying the EU is that last day's empire, but there's no doubt about it that the European nations are working toward a single empire. Maybe it's time to say one of the most important things that I'll say in this entire message. I really believe from what I see in scripture that this last day's empire will be completely different from any other world dominating power in history. Revelation speaks of the last day's empire as being primarily an economic empire. It doesn't seem to be the kind of empire where one nation conquers a lot of other nations. It seems to be an empire that, well, I hope I'm not overstating this, is kind of like born in a day. It's kind of like born instantaneously with the whole world having one single economic system. And again, I'm not sure how much of this last day's empire is military, but what I do know biblically is that it is economic in nature. For instance, you know, in the mark of the beast, the Bible says no one could buy or sell without the mark of that number whatever application the Bible is talking about there. It seems to be controlled through economics, not necessarily controlled militarily. Well, for the first time in history, you and I know clearly it would be possible to conquer the world peacefully through economics. I'm not sure we don't see that happening right now. If you think about just the way information is garnered today, there's almost like a universal sense of information being sent to electronic powers. And we're actually seeing some of those electronic powers flex their muscle. Well, we'll have to set that aside for another weekend when we take a look at what Daniel has to tell us about the Antichrist and this last day's empire. So since we're looking into the future anyway, why don't we see how this all winds up? You know, when I was a kid growing up in church, I heard a lot of sermons about prophecy. And frankly, a lot of those sermons scared me pretty bad because most of the preaching talked about the doom and the gloom and the frightening aspect of the last days. And there's a legitimate reason to talk about those difficult times. I'm, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish about this. But here's the thing that keeps me going. When I look at being in the last days, I realize that we're headed for a glorious future. 
Because even though man is always struggling against God and you have the clash of the dynasties, the dynasty of God, the dynasty of Satan, I know how it's going to end. God is going to win. So when I see the signs of the times, when I see prophecies fulfilled, while sure, part of it is bleak, there's a part of me that has a smile so big I can't wipe it off my face because I know every time we see a prophetic sign fulfilled, it means I'm just one day closer to what Daniel is going to tell Nebuchadnezzar about when he gets to the end of his vision. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that that image he saw in his dream is standing, looking as if it is in control. And then Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, sir, you saw something else in your dream. You saw this rock, and the rock was not cut out by hands. And this rock began to roll, and it began to roll toward the statue. And the rock got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it hit the statue, and it smashed it to smithereens. Now, forgive me for being corny. I have a vivid imagination, and sometimes it's pretty quirky. But I think about this stone smashing into the image, and spoiler alert, the stone is Jesus. I get this picture in my head. Have you ever been at the bowling alley? And you know what it's like? You can hear the sound of a strike several lanes away. There's two different kinds of strikes that you can hear. There's the sound of a strike where the ball rolls slowly down the lane and it, it hits right in the pocket and most of the pins fall down and there are two or three that kind of wobble and then ultimately you hear them kind of fall down and then you hear the sound of a strike. That's one strike that you can hear. And then there's the sound of a power bowler. I mean, when he or she releases the ball, I mean, it is scorching down the lane. You know what that sound is like when you hear that ball hit the pins and they all just explode and disappear. That's the sound I get in my head when I think about Daniel saying to Nebuchadnezzar, sir, there's a rock in your dream that's not cut out by hands, and it hits the statue, and it blasts it to smithereens. And Daniel goes on to say, that rock gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it fills the whole earth. Now, I want to close today's talk with Daniel's interpretation of that dream. Daniel says, here it is. During the reigns of those kings, those ten nations, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut out from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed the pieces of the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. Now remember I told you that Daniel has another version of this same vision. I really love what he says there because he goes beyond the metaphoric to take us into heaven to actually see, believe it or not, even though Daniel is writing 600 years before Jesus, he takes us into the throne room of heaven and lets us have a look at Jehovah Father God and Jesus. Let's look at this. I get chills every time I read this. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. That's a title that Jesus often claimed. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom 
is one that will never be destroyed. As Daniel tells the future here, I think that last line sort of says it all. I mean, it sort of sums up all the future prophecy, now history, that Daniel is going to talk about. It is simply this. Jesus has approached the Father after he died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead. And the Father has given him the kingship over the earth, the authority, the glory, the sovereign power. And all peoples, all nations from every language will worship him. And he will rule the world with fairness and justice and grace. And that kingdom, according to Daniel, will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Well, this is, this is chapter 2 of Daniel. We've got a lot more to look at as we go forward. But I think this is an important time for us to just stop and ask ourselves the question, are we part of Jesus' kingdom? You know, somebody could say, well, Mark, you're talking about prophecy here and Jesus ruling someday. How can I be part of Jesus' kingdom before he's actually king on the earth? Well, the Bible answers that question by telling us that supernaturally, God, God allows us to pre-enroll. God has made a way that you and I could already become part of Jesus' kingdom. It goes like this. Jesus came into our world the first time, not to reign. He came in the first time to deal with our biggest problem. The biggest problem that you and I have that separates us from God is our sin. The stuff that we do think and say that's wrong. The attitudes that are wrong. That's what... That's what separates us from God. But there is no way that you and I could pay for the things that we've done or will do wrong. And so God did something amazing. He sent his son into the world and he actually became human. Born of the Virgin Mary, he was human from his mother Mary, but he was also God at the same time. And so he lived for 33 years and never did anything wrong. So consequently, he, he lived the life that we should have lived. The only way that we could have gone to heaven on our own is to live the life that Jesus lived, but we can't do that for 30 minutes. Jesus lived that life for 33 years. And then the most remarkable exchange took place. Jesus laid that perfect life down on a Roman cross, and he hung and bled and died for our sins. It is as if God clicked and dragged all of our sins and placed them on Jesus and took that perfect life that he lived and clicked and dragged it and placed it upon us. Isn't that amazing? The most wonderful trade in history, our sins given to him and his righteousness given to us. And that's the offer on the table. And for anyone who is willing to be honest about our weakness and failure and sin and the darkness inside of us, for anyone who is willing to be honest about. See, that's what God wants. He wants us to recognize that we need Jesus. It's not that he wants us to feel guilty. It's not that he's trying to grind us in the ground because we've done things that are wrong. It's quite the opposite. But he does want us to be honest about our need for a savior. And when we come and we bring our brokenness and declare spiritual bankruptcy before God, and we ask that Jesus' righteousness be given to us, and we ask Jesus to pay for our sins, which he did on the cross. And when we invite him into our lives, we actually are, according to the Bible, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. We're talking about clash of dynasties. It's, it's God versus Satan. It's light versus darkness. And the Bible tells us if we are willing to invite Jesus Christ into our hearts and lives, 
that he actually becomes king now and we are part of his kingdom. Would you like that to happen in your life? Would you like all of your sins to disappear under the blood of Jesus? Would you like to have the righteous record of Jesus under your name? Well, the Bible tells us it's as simple as asking. And I'm going to do something right now. I'm going to lead you in an asking prayer. Prayer is talking to God. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and I'm going to lead it slowly. And I'll say each line with a pause to let you decide if you want to say this to God. These aren't magic words, but these are words that ask to become part of Jesus' kingdom. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I am flawed and broken, and I cannot fix myself. But I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave and he lives today and that he is the future everlasting king. I want to be part of that kingdom now. I want Jesus to be my king. I ask you to forgive me and to make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, I want to offer you something. For everyone attending New Spring today, if you just prayed that prayer with me, as soon as this service is over, I'm going to encourage you to go by any info center on our campus. And all you'll need to say is, I pray with Mark. And the reason for that is, I have a gift box I want to give you. There's a Bible just like the one I preach from and a book I wrote that will help you answer a lot of questions that you may still have and some other cool stuff. And again, no one there is going to hassle you or engage you in conversation unless you wish it. All you need to say is, I pray with Mark. I want to make sure you have that gift before you leave the campus. Today has been a day of good news. All the dysfunction in our world, God knows all about it. He's got a plan. He will make his plan work. And isn't it good to know we're part of his plan? See you next week.